invite and plead that your Holy Spirit would make itself evident to us individually, uh, that we would hear the Spirit's voice in our hearts, in our minds, that it would uh, prick our conscience, that it would move in us, that it would stir our affections toward Jesus and toward you through the gospel. Uh, We pray and we trust that you would do that today. If we would trust you for our salvation, then we trust you for the daily work that we that you do in our lives. I pray that as we hear from your word, even reading it together, that it would stand out to us. Your invitation to come and to rest and find real rest of the soul in you. Uh, some of us need that greatly, desperately this morning, um, though we may it may not be the most difficult physical circumstance of our lives. We may not have worked hours of overtime this week. Some may have, but all of us need rest in you. And so we pray that you would give that to us today. Help us to seek it, to find it, and to thank you for it graciously. Help as we sing and as we hear song that it would move in us, that our hearts would be tuned to worship and to praise you for who you are, that you are our God and you have shown yourself to us through your word. And as we gather around your word this morning, uh, may your spirit do its work in us. May it not be our minds only that comprehend and our intellect that figures things out, but may it be your spirit that moves us. Thank you. Please be seated. Amen. As you're seated, isn't it good to sing with the psalmist this morning and to praise the Lord and shout how Awesome are his deeds, and uh, for us it may even be a little different than the psalmist thought. He didn't get to see or experience the mercy of a Savior in Christ. He was pointing toward it, but we think about our own experience with Jesus and how he has died for us and how he lives again for us and through us and in us, and we can say how awesome are God's deeds, and we're thankful for that this morning and should rejoice in it. Find in your Bible, if you would, Matthew, the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, in chapter number 12. Matthew in chapter number 12, and we will read there in just a few moments. But if you would, go ahead and find your place there in Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of the chapter. Uh, If you have your bulletin, you can make note of a few things this morning. And, of course, there at the bottom you have our missionaries that were... Uh, praying for this week and asking the Lord to bless their ministries. And then you see there the college boxes we're preparing to send out. This is the last day for that by this evening. Anything that is going to be turned in needs to be turned in as far as donations. And uh, you can see the back, there's a little bit of a a list and some ideas of what you can do uh, to help as we're going to send out some care packages to help our college students kind of finish that last couple weeks of school as their supplies have begun to run dry, and uh, they need a few things to get them through all the way to the end. And so, if you would, take part in that today, if you haven't already. And then you see there, tonight, there's a teen activity at 5 o'clock, so that starts at our normal uh, Bible study time, but there will be an activity this evening, and they'll carry a little longer than uh, their normal 6 o'clock or so dismissal. They'll go a little past that, and so that's tonight at 5 o'clock. And then, uh, Seniors Fellowship, this Wednesday, I've heard it called cowboy soup. I've heard it heard it called hobo soup. Um, I'm not sure what you would call it, but uh, if you would, if you're planning on coming, 
uh, let the youngs know and then bring a can of uh, vegetables uh, to go with the soup. The meat will be uh, provided for that. And then that will conclude just before the midweek service. If you're coming to the midweek service, you can come to the dinner and then straight to the service from there as well. And those things are coming up this week, and I hope that you'll plan to be a part of each of those. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, there in your Bible this morning. We'll read the first few verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use the one in, uh, there in your seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, don't have one that's your own, then that's our gift to you this morning. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. And we want to read together <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12. Look at me, Wood, in verse number 1. And then after I read, Brother Young will sing one final song. And we'll come back and discuss this passage together. It says in verse 1, <clears throat> At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. And his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungered and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? It's a good question for our service this morning. Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Let's ask the Lord to help us with this passage today particularly. Father, you are good and merciful to us. Help us to see your mercy today in how we react to your word and to what we learn of you. And uh, help us to rejoice that you are a God first of mercy and that you are a God who extends relationship to us. And we will praise you for it in Jesus' name. We're thankful for that this morning. Look again, if you would, Matthew chapter 12 today. And if you have your bulletin, you can look there for some notes to kind of guide and follow along and uh, some things that we'll be filling in together. If you have something that you can write with, make sure you have that ready as well. Matthew chapter 12 this morning. <clears throat> and uh, I will say off the bat, it's going to be difficult to get it all in today, but we're going to try. And if not, we will pick and choose where we stop and start and just pick back up next week where we left off. But I want you to look at Matthew 12 
it's not a very difficult passage to understand what's happening. And it's not a very detailed passage in what it reveals to us. But what it speaks to has a lot of detail in it. And uh, we'll see that in just a moment. I think that Matthew chapter 12 in particular, I think that it's a milestone chapter in the gospel of Matthew. It's sort of a, a key point, a hinge chapter, if you would, on which the rest of the book sort of turns. We've been studying through the gospel of Matthew now for, oh, I think close, closing in on half a year probably or so that we've been walking through Matthew. And he's presented to us Jesus' birth and his beginning in in the first three or four chapters of Matthew. And then he gives us Jesus' teachings, and then he gives us Jesus' miracles and his power. And he says not only can he teach this, but he does it with authority because he is God himself, and he shows those miracles. And then there's this call to service and worship that Matthew presents us. He says you can't just look at Jesus and be amused by him. You can't just follow Jesus and listen to him. You must respond to Jesus. That's what he presents. He is the Son of God. He came unlike any other human to this earth. He teaches a kingdom that is different than any other kingdom on this earth. He does miracles and he has power that no one else has. And so you must give yourself to him. You must follow him because he is God. And then in Matthew 11 and 12, the last couple of weeks, we have looked at people beginning to have reactions to Jesus. So the first 10 chapters, Matthew just sort of presenting Jesus to, to us. This is what he says. This is what he does. This is where he came from. This is who he is. He has shown us the king. And now he is showing people's response to the king. And they're not all the responses that you might assume. We always think if we could just if we could have seen Jesus, if Jesus lived in our day, if we got to watch what he would do, then maybe we would feel even just more driven to give our lives to him. But that is not the case that we see. We saw John the Baptist who had declared the glory of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And yet in a prison, he's doubting and sends message and says, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And then we have these that are sort of intrigued. And Jesus says he's going to heal a, a, a one that had already passed, a little girl. And they laugh him to shame and scorn. They sort of make fun of him and mock him. And then we have some that are interested in Jesus, but they're sort of apathetic to him. And then even last week, see, we saw Jesus confront not just the Pharisees like he had for many chapters, saying your religion has confused your mind and you can't follow me. Then he talks to the cities where he had been doing all these miracles and he says, you're just here for the miracles and following me, but you haven't repented. You need to turn your hearts toward me. And the people did not do that. And now this week we have another reaction, which is just flat out rejection. The king has been presented and now the king is going to be rejected, particularly by the Pharisees we see this morning. And so we've seen in chapter 11 that there's these moving phases toward Jesus Christ. And we discussed them last week, doubt, criticism, indifference, and now rejection and even rage and fury and anger and hatred toward the Lord. But I want us to do this morning to sort of lay a little bit of the groundwork and discuss a little bit of why this passage is so significant. To do that, we're going to have to do a little bit of background work, and I hope that you'll stay with me if you would this morning. Look at verse number one. It says, at that time, this is going to sort of be our number one, our introduction to what's happening. 
In fact, if you look back at the last verses of chapter 11 that we read to begin our morning service, Jesus saying to these people, you've been so overladen with um, religious uh, technicalities by your rulers and by the Pharisees. And he says, and others of you have rejected that. You haven't followed those religious technicalities and all the little laws, but you feel shame because your sin still hasn't been dealt with. And so he says, to those of you that labor over and over, verse 28, and those of you that are heavy laden, those of you that feel worked to death to earn God's favor, and those of you that feel shamed to death because you cannot stand right before God, what is his invitation? Come to me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart. Ye shall find rest for your souls. And it's into that context that we have this passage now, this story, verse number one. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. I want you to think about <clears throat> the Sabbath by way of introduction. What was the intent of the Sabbath? What just very broad summary, what were the people to do on the Sabbath? You can holler it out loud if you'd like. To rest, right? So in verses 28 through 30, we see him saying, Come to me, I'll give you real rest. And then in verse number one, we have Jesus coming on the day of rest. And as he comes, the word Sabbath, uh, Sabbaton, it just simply means to cease. And that was the basic of the command of Sabbath for the people of Israel, was that they just stop doing what they did on all the other days. It's exemplified for us by God. He creates the world in six days. Did God need to rest? Was he exhausted? Was he tired? No, no, he's infallible. He's omnipotent. There's nothing that God needs. But as an example, he shows us, I'm going to present these things and, and, and create these things, and then I'm going to rest to, to show this is my desire for mankind. This is what I long to see in them, for them to find rest in me. And isn't it interesting, actually, of all of the Ten Commandments, we'll get to this in a moment, this is the only command for Israel in those Ten Commandments that is not, in its very essence, a moral command. It's sort of inserted. Think about it. All the other ones were just, by being human beings, and the moral code that God has laid into us, just sort of in our fabric, because we're created in His image, all the other ones, they shall have no other gods before me, no idols, no stealing, no killing, no coveting, no adultery. All of those things are moral code. But the Sabbath was different. You know, there's no one commanded to take a Sabbath day weekly until the Jewish people are commanded in the Mosaic law. Adam, Abraham, Noah, Isaac, there's no command. It is exemplified, but it's not a moral command that's built into our fiber, but it is something that God laid out for His people for a specific purpose and intent. Now, when we think of the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, I think a lot of us will immediately think of a lot of technicalities or things that we have heard that you are that the Jews thought you were supposed to do on the Sabbath. And I'll be honest, I'll be frank, there are, there's a lot of my life that I spent kind of thinking begrudgingly of the Jewish Sabbath. We don't hold to this in the same way that they did. Now as a church, we celebrate the Lord's Day Sabbath, in which we come together to worship Him. But for them, it was all about rest, quote-unquote rest. But it had morphed and changed. Did you know that Mosaic law and God's written law about the Sabbath is actually fairly vague? It says that you should keep the Sabbath holy, 
separate, sacred, different from all of your other days. And in other places, it instructed that you were to cease from your working. They were an agricultural society. It says there's to be no reaping. There's not to be, you're not supposed to carry out your work like you do on a daily basis. But other than that, there's not a lot of commands about the Sabbath. However, it had been passed down to these people that Jesus was working with and around. Notice verse number two. When the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, your disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. And they were not quoting a law from Exodus 20 or from the Ten Commandments or from some moral absolute or even from ceremonial Mosaic law given in Scripture. The, the, the standard that the Pharisees are speaking about here, where he says that you're breaking Sabbath law, did not come from God in any way, shape, or fashion. Because I think when you first read this, you think, oh yeah, they kind of were breaking the Sabbath because they were going about, they were picking, there's a technicality, they were traveling, they were doing all these things. I want, I want us to think for a moment about this. You know, the, the Sabbath was, law was not discarded, but it was transformed for us in Christ. And I think when Jesus says, come to me all there heavy laden and I will give you rest, he has this thought in mind. I want to take just a, a moment and give a short culture lesson for us today, primarily because I have read for a good portion of this week, I've been reading Talmud Law, and I think if I have to do that, someone else should have to share with me in that for a few minutes. Now, what was Talmud Law? It, let me just say this clear. It was not God-given law. There was God's law in His Word that He spoke to His people through Moses, some that were particular to Israel, some that were for all of mankind. That's God's law. The Talmud would be rabbi to rabbi and rabbi to student. And it was year after year they would speak this oral code of tradition and law and they would pass it down one to the next. And eventually it got so big and long that they, somebody had to write it down eventually to be able to, be able to consume it all. And it was just passed from one to the next. And one law would be added and another law would be added and another law. Be, it reminds me of like, you, you, if you go to a different school or uh, schools have rule books and, and, and workplaces have their kind of code of conduct or, or this is how we operate. And when you read, have you ever read those rules and you thought that is there only because someone at some point did this, you know, and you're reading it and you're like, this makes no sense. Why would, it, why would this be a rule? No one ever would even think about that. Well, someone did along the way. And what happened in Talmud law is, as things were brought to the rabbis, how should we interpret God's law in this circumstance? They would make a ruling on it by what they thought it should be. And then it would get put into the Talmud law and passed from one to the next. To give you the scope of how broad this got, in the Talmud there are two sections about the Sabbath day. One, I... I Skim read one of them, one of these sections, that was 24 chapters long. There was one particular historical rabbi that studied one of those chapters, and it took him two and a half years to figure out everything that that one chapter was talking about for Sabbath law. It makes me feel heavy laden just thinking about all that they had to do. Because here is the honest truth. Here is what they had done to the Sabbath. 
they had made it, it, it took more work to rest than it did work to work. Like if I was a Jewish man in that day, I would have been thrilled that work day had started back and Sabbath was finally over. Let me give you some examples of this. Just Sabbath law. For example, you could not travel more than 3,000 feet from your home unless on Friday you had planted some food 3,000 feet away. And then when you traveled to the place that you had planted food because it was part of your home, that food plot became home and you could go 3,000 feet from there. Or if you lived in an area where there was uh, an, an alley or a roadway between your house and someone else's, you could lay a rope from your house to their house. So they said you can't go more than 3,000 feet because it's traveling, it's labor, something God never commanded that you couldn't do. But they would lay a rope from one house to the next, and that created an entryway, and it, and it connected those two houses. So I can't go 3,000 feet from their house, but now my house is part of their house. And in fact, some people would lay rope like a grid, like a, like a city block almost, and they would say, well, because these houses are connected, it's all one giant house. And so I can go into all these other people's houses, and I can go 3,000 feet from their house. See, what they actually ended up doing is not only did they make law that God didn't make, but then they made exceptions and ways around the laws that they made that God didn't make. Let me give you some examples. On the Sabbath, for lifting things, things could be lifted up or put down only in certain places. You could lift something if it was in a public place, only if you set it down in a private place. Or you could lift it in a private place only if you also set it down in a public place. You could never carry a burden that weighed more than a dried fig, but you could carry something that weighed half of a dry fig twice in the day. Forbidden food. There was a long list of things you could not eat on the Sabbath that were not forbidden by law on any day of the week. But you could eat nothing on the Sabbath day that was larger than an olive. And if you put a half an olive in your mouth and you found that that olive was rotten, you had to spit it out. And you could not put another olive in your mouth because your mouth didn't know the difference, that it was a half, and you had already consumed it as if it were a whole. And they didn't want people to put something in, chew it up, and spit it out, put something in, chew it up, and be able to eat all day that way. So they said you couldn't put more. So, so much technicality. If you threw an object into the air on the Sabbath with one hand, you could only catch it with that same hand. If you caught it with the other hand, it was considered a violation of the Sabbath because it was work. If it was, if it was right... If it was right near the Sabbath day and you reached out and picked up food, right? Imagine this. I, this would drive me nuts. Sabbath was sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. Now, the hunters in the room know we think of sundown as just a general broad hour-long time. Most normal people, the hunters know it comes down to an exact second, doesn't it? Some of you are shaking your head. You know sundown counts for legal shooting light. It ends at a certain moment, Okay. And so the Sabbath would start sundown on Friday. And the Talmud law says if you picked up something to eat, large piece of bread, and were headed to your mouth with it, and they said, and the Sabbath overtook you, meaning it flipped to Sabbath while it was in your hand, you had to drop it because to take it the rest of the way to your mouth would be considered labor and a violation of the Sabbath. Can you imagine having like a Big Mac on the way and you get it about right there? I would be very tempted to break Talmud law in that moment. In fact, I know for sure I probably would at that point. There were temptations for work. For instance, they made laws that a tailor, only a tailor, could not carry a needle because he'd be tempted to sew. A scribe could not carry a pen because he'd be tempted to write. Only ink could be carried 
only enough to make two letters, not two letters to your family, two Hebrew letters, like A and B. A pupil could not carry his books because he'd be tempted to read. You couldn't examine someone else's clothing and look at it as a whole because if you'd be tempted if you saw a dust, dust on them or an insect, you'd be tempted to brush it off their back, which would be considered labor. You could not take a bath on the Sabbath because if you got out and your body dripped water on the floor and then you wiped it up, it'd be considered cleaning. If you lit a candle, you could not blow it out. Chairs could not be moved because on the dirt floors they would drag ruts in the ground, which was a form of plowing and would be a violation of the law. You're, you're laughing. These are Talmud law passed down by Jewish people. A woman, I don't know why it says a man can't, but it specifically says a woman could not look into a mirror or glass because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out, which would be labor. <laughs> you couldn't wear jewelry because most jewelry of that day weighed more than a dried fig. I guess you could probably wear a dried fig, but I don't know that anybody would want to do that. You couldn't put any more grain than, or you couldn't carry any more grain than a hand in your hand than that which would fit into a lamb's mouth. I would find the largest lamb I could find. You couldn't leave a radish in salt because it would become a pickle, which was a form of labor. And this is a small part of 24 chapters. It's just, it just goes on. I have others here, and I'm not going to read them. For instance, 39 things that were forbiddenly common. I probably won't read them all, but I'll just start. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, sheaving, threshing, winnowing, sifting, grinding, sifting with a sieve, kneading, baking, shearing, uh, shearing the wool, washing the wool, beating the wool, dyeing it, spinning, putting it through a weaver's beam, sewing more than two stitches, tearing in order that you could sew more than two stitches. So I guess if you sewed two stitches, made a mistake, you could not tear those and then sew two more. You could, not, and you could not catch deer, could not kill it, skin it, salt it, or prepare its skin, cut off its hair, or serve it as meal. You could not beat a hammer, light a fire, extinguish a fire, carry one possession from one person to another. And so the list goes on and on. You know what the Sabbath was for Jewish people? A pain in the neck. It was awful. It had become, I just want you to sense with me, it had become awful for them and Jesus enters into this situation in which people mankind in the name of God had made all these extra laws for everyone else and they they made laws that were easy for them to fulfill but hard for others in that sake and it had become a burden it was impossible to rest and yet in this moment Jesus says come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This Jesus now comes along and here's you want to know how Jesus treated their time of law? He didn't pay attention to any of it. He didn't care. <laughs> so he brings his disciples and he says we're going to obey God's law and we're not going to worry about yours. <laughs> we're not going to worry about offending you because you have made yourself gods. And so you have this introduction, this indictment that they make in verse number two. Notice the Pharisees saw it and they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. But that was not true. It was not that it was against God's law. It was that it was against their rules. And Jesus gives them this instruction. It leads, them, it leads Jesus to, to teach them about it. And he says, Truthfully, you have gone far too far. What they were doing was not actually, not only was it not lawful, it was actually lawful. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, 
It says, When thou comest into the standing grain of thy neighbor, thou may pick or pluck the ears of grain with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing grain. That was the law. That if you're walking through, God made provision. They didn't have McDonald's and Wendy's or Olive Garden and all these things. If you were traveling, it was difficult to find food. And it says, if you're walking through land that has crops on it, you can, with a hand, take some of that grain, whether it is wheat or whether it is corn. You can take that and you can use it to eat it to sustain your own journey. But don't take a sickle and start reaping half of their crop field and say, well, we were traveling, just taking some grain. God's law was logical. It made sense for the people to provide for them and to protect them. But mankind had ruined it. The Pharisees, religious, religious rulers especially. He never forbid doing this on the Sabbath. You could not reap on the Sabbath, but that meant to bring in all of your crop as a farmer. This is obviously not reaping. They had all sorts of laws. I'll read you another one. I may insert more of these from time to time. They actually had rules about how you could treat sick people or hurting people or starving people. You could eat on the Sabbath or gain crop for someone who was starving to death, but how do you decide who's in that position or not? It said you could put a bandage on a man, but it could not be a medicated bandage because that would be work. You could keep someone from dying, but you could not help them. That was literally their law. You could stop them from dying, but you could not do anything to advance their treatment until after the Sabbath was over. You see, this, they were cruel. Not only was it overburdensome, their laws were cruel toward people. And Jesus has had enough of this. And notice that buried God, they buried God's law so deeply under a pile of legislative traditional trash that it was unbearable. And God intended the Sabbath to be rest. In fact, the, the other portion of the story, the other accounts of the story are in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 6. And in that, Jesus says, in Luke 6, it says, The Sabbath is made for man and not man made for the Sabbath. As Jesus is in this very same story, he gives that illustration. And he says, look, God made the Sabbath to help man, not the other way around. And you've ruined what God gave to mankind as a gift. You say, where are we going with this? We'll get there. Just a moment. Look at verse 3. And notice the instruction that Jesus gives. This is not about Jesus' disagreement with them about the Sabbath. It doesn't, he, doesn't even, he doesn't even entertain all of their crazy laws that they had made up. Then he, just, he doesn't even try to address them. He doesn't try to argue with each legalistic thing that they came up with. And he doesn't try to say, well, you made this standard and God made this standard. You made this. He doesn't do that. He addresses authority. And I want you to notice, it's beautiful how he does it. Look at verse 3. But he said unto them, have you not read? Now that would drive them nuts. Pharisees, Bible nerd people. Like they're all, they memorize the law. And Jesus responds to them saying, you can't do that. It's against God's law. He's like, haven't you read the Bible? Haven't you read God's law? That would have infuriated them. Haven't you read what David did? This is in 1 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 21, where David has been rejected by the people as king and Saul is chasing after him. He's exhausted and his men, and they come to the place where the tabernacle was. It says, notice that when he was hungered and they that were with him, he entered the house of God. He goes to Abimelech, who was being the high priest of the moment, and they did eat the showbread. What was the showbread? Get this, this was 12, every week there was 12 loaves of bread that were made that were called the showbread. 
each one of them had six and a half pounds of flour. That's a big piece of bread. So they would make these 12 loaves, and every week, get this, on the Sabbath day, the priest would go in and remove the old 12 and put out a new 12. And it was to show God's continuing covenant with Israel that he would continually provide and protect them. Guess who was instructed to eat the bread? The priests. Only the priests, because it had been sanctified for God's work. But David is starving, and his men, they're on the run. And they go and they meet Abimelech, and guess what Abimelech gives them to eat? The showbread that no one else was supposed to eat beside the priests. What does this show? It shows that God's law is never intended to the detriment and harm of people, but rather he actually uses it for provision. And, he, and David was like the hero for Israel, so he, he comes in and he says, don't you remember, and you have a blank there, don't you remember King David, right in the word there, King David eats the showbread that was supposed to only be eaten by priests on the Sabbath. Then notice he goes further, verse number five. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Notice what he says. So first he says, King David took stuff that was only supposed to be eaten by priests on the Sabbath, and King David did that. And then he said, don't you remember the priests? They're literally commanded by God to work on the Sabbath. Like sacrifices didn't stop on the Sabbath. Moving and taking in the showbread didn't stop on the Sabbath. And there's sarcasm in what Jesus is saying. He's not literally saying the priests are profaning the law of God. He's pointing out to the Pharisees how silly their laws are. He said, your laws, this is what happens when people make the rules over God's rules, is they become absurd. Because he says God's priests can't work on the Sabbath as they're commanded because it would break the people's rules about the Sabbath. <laughs> and he says, don't you know... King David did this, and then he gives an example. He says, the priests did this. And then notice, if you would, verse 6, he says that there is one in this place, there is in this place one greater than the temple. We'll come back to that. Verse 7, but if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Where is he quoting? He's quoting the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse number 6. And so I want you to note there if, in your notes, if you're writing them down, King David, notice, notice what he does. He gives these examples, and he says, King David does this. The priest's spiritual duties do this. And the message of the prophet, Hosea, teaches that God gives mercy before sacrifice, and that mercy and relationship is his primary goal. We won't turn to Hosea for time's sake. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus says, the king of Israel can do this, is the exception to your law. The priests can do this. They're the exception to your law. And the message of the prophets actually speaks the opposite of your law. Notice the three things. Prophet, priest, king. <laughs> and Jesus says, if your human king and your human priests and your human prophets can do this and show you you have missed it, then the holy king and the perfect priest and the almighty prophet can do the same. And notice how he continues on. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's what he says. I'm sick. This is what Jesus, I'm transliterating here. He, I'm sick of you taking my Sabbath. He is the King. He is God himself. And he looks at these Pharisees and says, you can't have the Sabbath 
it's mine. It's the Lord's. It is God's that he has given for the rest of his people. And not only my king, not only my prophet, not only my priest, I am God and I make the rules of the Sabbath. This is glorious truth. Now, you may feel like we're wound up in a historical culture lesson and some technicalities of Jesus' teaching here. Jesus clearly is saying in this passage, I am God. Now, you hear a lot of different people that will argue with you about the deity of Jesus. If you've ever had a, a lengthy conversation with someone that is a, a Muslim believer and, and you get very deep into that conversation or you get into a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness and you get very deep in that conversation, they're trained to, to come to this question and say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God and he never claimed to be the Son of God. They obviously haven't read this passage for what it is. <laughs> Because he said, there's someone here greater than the temple. There is the Son of Man, which was used in Daniel to refer to the coming Messiah who was God. And he says, is Lord of the Sabbath. In chapter 11, he says, my Father, talking about God the Father. He is saying here, I am God. And then notice in verse number 9, he doesn't back down. Jesus is cool. Like, he's really cool. He comes after the Pharisees, and then he does not back down. They're like, Jesus, you're breaking all of our laws that we made and this discrepancy in how you do this. And he gives them instruction. He gives them examples. He says, you evidently haven't read your Bible because here's how this works. Then he gives them an illustration. Notice what he does in verse number nine. This is, this is so cool. And when he was departed, thence, where did he go? He went into their synagogue on the Sabbath where they, the great Pharisees, are supposed to be teaching all day. So they, number one, how did they get to the field 3,000 feet from their home if they weren't going to break their own laws to see Jesus doing this? So the disciples, Mark says, Mark and Luke tells the disciples went by, they grabbed grain, they were literally rolling it in their hands to kind of get the shell off of it, and then they were eating it themselves. The Pharisees come out, they spy on them, they confront, you can't do that. And Jesus is like, actually, I can. And then he goes into the synagogue where the Pharisees were supposed to be teaching everyone all day about the Sabbath. And he enters their synagogue, and notice what happens. Verse 10, notice what the Pharisees do. Behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? Mark and Luke tell us that, he, that Jesus literally, at this point, brings the man up in front of them and in front of everybody. How would you like to be this man at this point? Like, I, I wonder if the Pharisees had ever even talked to him at all or showed concern for him until they could use him for their own deeds and for their own entrapment of Jesus. And isn't that, should that not be, should never be the way the world views the church? That we don't care about people until there's a moment that we can use them for our good. Though that often is what we portray. So Jesus says, he brings him up. Imagine being that man like, I, I just came to hear now remember, it's against the law to heal someone on the Sabbath. That's their rule, not God's. It was against the law to heal someone on the Sabbath. It was against the law to help someone on the Sabbath unless it was to save their life. Now, the man has a withered hand, paralyzed hand. That's not a good thing, but it's not a life-threatening thing either. But notice what verse 11, what Jesus says, his illustration. And he says to them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? Meaning like kind of one sheep out of many. If it fall in a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? And this is ironic because the religious leaders would actually sit around and debate things like this, like frivolous 
stupid conversations that they would have at times. They would sit around and debate, if a lamb falls into a pit, how can we get it out without breaking the Sabbath? And some would say, well, we could throw pillows and blankets in because that's not that heavy of a burden. We could throw that in and then it could climb out of the pit. It's a ruining of a good pillows and blankets, but we could throw that in there and then they would get out. Others said, well, we could take it food if it's not going to die in the pit and we'll wait until the next day and then we'll take it out. And then others even said, we could tie ropes to it and one man could pull like a foot and pass it off and another man could pull it like a foot. And if we all do it, then no one would break the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, logical common sense that you're just going to save your animal if he's there in a pit. But then notice the question he asks, and it's daunting. Verse 12, how be it then, is a man better than a sheep? Now picture for a moment, Jesus has a man who has simply a paralyzed hand. He cannot use it, can't labor, whatever with it. He has a paralyzed hand. Jesus has that man standing there, and he turns to all these people and says, if, if your animal falls in a hole on the Sabbath, you'll take it out, won't you? Why? Because you don't want to lose it, because it has economic value to you, because it's important to you. It means something to you. And then he looks at this man, and he says, don't people mean more than animals? Like, don't people have greater value than other stuff? And you know what Mark and Luke say? It doesn't give it to us here, but Mark and Luke, the same account, it says the Pharisees would not answer him. They, they couldn't bring themselves to say it because they know what he's hinting at. They know that he's saying, well, he can heal him, of course, because he's more valuable than a lamb. But they don't, they're so consumed with their own rules that they will not say people are more valuable than animals. And Jesus, I don't have time today. There are so many places we can go with this. But people are more valuable than anything in this world that God has placed in this physical creation. He teaches it all over Scripture. Whether people are old or people are young or people are not born yet, whether people can contribute or whether they are lame and ill, whether they are close to the end of their life in death or they are in the most vibrant moments of their life, whether they have financial means or whether they are destitute, all people are worth more value than all other things in this world. And the Christian faith and the Christian church of all people in this world should be displaying that, yelling it with their lives. We love people more than anything else because we love God more than all else. We think that people are more valuable than anything else in this world, regardless of what they look like, where they came from, what neighborhood they're from, what family they're from, regardless of any of it, people are worth more than anything else because they're created in the image of God and he gave value to them. And Jesus teaches that with his illustration. And then he, does, and then he finishes, verse 13. Then he turns and he says to the man, stretch forth your hand. And he stretched it forth and it was restored whole like as the other sheep. I picture, like as the other hand. I picture Jesus like we're, we're working with Lex right now, trying to teach him certain things and listening. And you can see it registering in his brain when we give him certain instructions. But sometimes it doesn't go from his brain to his heart, you know, or whatever it may, or his ears to his brain. And you're looking at him saying, Lex, don't jump off that counter. And you look at him and he's like, I'm going to do it. No, don't. One, you shouldn't be on the counter. Two, do not jump off the counter. And he's like edging toward it. Lex, don't do that. 
And then he just sort of starts, I think I'm going to do it. No, Lex, don't do that. And then he just does it. And you can see the Pharisees looking at Jesus. He calls up this man with a withered hand. They say, is it lawful then to heal on the Sabbath too? And he calls this man up. He's like, don't do this. And Jesus, well, why don't you come up here and stand in front of everyone? You better not do this. And then Jesus gives him the sheep illustration, and it sets in what he's doing. You better not do this. And then Jesus says, stretch forth your hand, and he heals him. And they're like, I can't believe he did that. And notice their response, the insurrection that they have in verse number 14. Then the Pharisees went out, and they held counsel against him, how they might destroy him. They wanted to kill him. Why? Because their law, their law, their rules, their temple, their ideas, and their Sabbath day were more important to them than a possible relationship with God. And they killed the Messiah of the world for it. And we look at them and think, how could they ever do that? Let's close in in our minds and, and start to point toward the end here. How could they ever do this? How could they ever be focused more on things than they were people? How can we? How could they ever be so focused on getting things right by their own technicality, not things that God had commanded, but things that they had warped God's word into their own fashion? How could they ever look at those things and think that was more important than having a relationship with God? How do we? How could they ever be so focused on lifting themselves up in the eyes of others so that others view them as good and right when the Bible says, Jesus says, that their hearts were far from the Lord? How could they ever be so consumed with looking good in front of their religious community and in front of the people that they lived around and being viewed as right and austere and popular and proud and powerful? How could they ever want that more than wanting their heart to be right with God? How can we? How could they ever view God as this taskmaster that gave rules, burdensome rules to dictate people's lives rather than seeing him as a God of mercy? How can we? I want you to think as we close. There's, I didn't get anywhere near what we thought we might today, but I want to, I in conclusion, bring you this. You have some room, I think, on the back if you want to jot some things down. Let's just... It's, just, it's an interesting story. It's an interesting account of what Jesus is doing when he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. So how should we respond? And so rather than try to pull out more technicalities this morning, let's just finish for a, a minute or two with just three thoughts. What can we take from this passage that will point us toward the gospel? That's where we should always try to run when we're in God's word is let's try to get to the gospel. This is, it's not very difficult to get there from here. Number one, think good thoughts of God. So often people think that God makes up all these laws and commandments to weigh down our lives and make us miserable. Number one, we would do well to find out what is actually a commandment of God and what is not. What we think is right or wrong based on scripture compared to what we have heard, it's good to know for ourselves but to think good thoughts of God. Because here's the truth. The Pharisees and the people around them, I'm I'm convinced the Pharisees really took no thought of God. And because they took no thought of God, 
but lived out religious lives, it made those around them think bad thoughts of God. Let's repeat that for a moment. Because the Pharisees lived religious lives with no real thought of God and interaction with Him, everyone around them thought bad thoughts of God. Our own lives? You can apply. We'll move on. Number two, think good thoughts of God, that God has to make us sweeter and fuller, satisfied in Him. Number two, receive the Sabbath as a gift. And I say the Sabbath, meaning the Lord's Day Sabbath, that God has given us this command to rest, to think, to meditate. It doesn't mean that we on Saturdays, as the Sabbath was, don't get out of bed and don't lift and don't eat things bigger than an olive. And it doesn't mean that on Sundays we don't, but it means that as the example in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 20, as they gathered together on the first day of the week, that God transformed the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? It was a picture pointing toward the rest that people would one day find in the Savior. Israel, among all the nations, says we don't even have to work on the seventh day because we trust that God will provide and protect for us. And Christians today, we don't point toward a rest in the coming Messiah. We point to the rest that we have in Jesus who has come. And we point back and we gather on Sundays to worship and proclaim His glory and to worship together that He's gathered us in His arms despite our sin, and He's forgiven us of it through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in it, and we can take a whole day of our week and set it aside, pointing back to the rest that we found in Him, pointing forward to the eternal rest that we will one day have in Him. And then number three, let's be people of grace. Number one, think good thoughts of God. Number two, receive the Sabbath for what it is, a gift. And then number three, let's be people of grace. It should never be able to be questioned in our lives. Is that more important than people? But share, God's, share with God's people who are in need. The Bible tells us to practice hospitality. It says to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says be kind, be compassionate one to another, forgiving one another. It tells us to put aside all other things, and above all virtues, put on love. Let us be people of grace, because we serve a God of grace. What was a greater declaration of God's character to the people in this? Remember, multitudes are following Him everywhere, but also Jesus' disciples are following Him. What was the greater declaration of God's actual nature? That you couldn't go more than 3,000 feet from your home, eat anything bigger than an olive, carried something more than a dried fig, or take a bath because you might accidentally wash your floor? Is that a great picture of God to those that don't know Him? Or Jesus standing with a man saying, I want to help him. Which actually shows the nature and character of God? It's fairly obvious. So let's ask ourselves this morning, are our lives consumed? It doesn't mean we neglect God's law especially God's moral law for our lives, it doesn't mean we neglect obedience to His Word, but it means that we put it in the perspective that God has called us to do good to others, to love Him first and thereby love others. And so let's ask Him to help us with that this morning. If you would bow your head and close your eyes today. Let's just take these last three points. Do you think good thoughts about God? Very often, 
Like when you think about God, do you think of him as loving and kind? Do you think that the laws that he has made for your life are number one, to provide for you, and then number two, to protect you from sin and its devastating effects on our lives? Or do we picture him as the boring study hall teacher that just is there to keep us in line? The foreman at work that makes sure we don't break the rules. The, the boss that just demands of us so that we can produce for him. Sometimes as Christians, we do not view God the way that he has, in his word, displayed himself to be viewed. How do you think of the Sabbath? And I don't just mean a Sunday, but how do you think of the rest that you find in Christ? Do you picture your relationship as one of burden and shame because you're either having to earn, earn your status before God or you're ashamed because you haven't? Or have you found rest in him? And then finally, are you a person of mercy and grace and goodness to those around you, to your family, to your wife, in your marriage, as a parent, a grandparent? Jesus, in, in Mark, the story of the same, same event, Jesus turns to his disciples when he gets ready to heal the man and he says, it is good to do good on the Sabbath. Very defiantly, definitively says, I am here to do good. We as his people should be the same. Ask him to help us. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to run to you. We look back and we think of even the comical effects that human rules had on these people's lives, but more than that, the devastating effect that it had on people's view of you. Lord, we want to be obedient to your word and follow your commands. And we know that when we do that, we will display you rightly. So help us to do that. The view of your glory is dependent sometimes on our interactions with others. Help us, rebuke us, move in us. Help us to be good people of mercy as you displayed for us. Help us to trust you, that you are the Lord of all. To love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand if you would this morning. Let's sing together here at this altar, there at your seat. God's working in your heart about any number of things. Then allow him, mercifully submit to him and find his grace is sweet. Let's sing this morning.